If you're a dad, hey, first of all, thanks, Mike, for leading. I mean, we know Aaron's out of town, and there's nothing more exciting when he's going, that was awesome, man. Why, why can't, I, you know, it's, I think we get so uptight, right, with worship, and it's got to be a certain way. You know what's the most amazing thing in the world for me is to be in the back and actually hear voices? You know, when you got the big band playing and all that, you just can't, you just, you hear the music and that's it. You can't even hear yourself sing. I need to hear myself sing to be able to sing in tune, and I can barely do that. See, my wife agrees. But, um, but there's something just neat about stripping it down and, and doing it the way that we just do it, and, and to do it in a, in a light spirit, you know, in a, in a lightness, uh, a, lighted, a, a light heart to where we're not uptight and crazy over it, and if, if things don't go exactly how... Uh, we think they should, that we don't get blown out. And so that was, that was fun, man. That was cool. Me? Oh, I thought you said me. I was just, well, I know, but. <laughs> no, you, you do, man. Your voices are great. It's really neat, just kind of the unvarnished approach, you know, and just, and just listening to it that way and singing that way. It's exciting. And uh, for you dads, uh, we have a gift for you. And it's by the exit door downstairs. So pick up a copy of this book. It's a great book for the dads to read. I read it a couple of years ago and really enjoyed it. It's called God is the Gospel by John Piper. So if you're a, you're a dad, make sure you grab a copy of that. That's our gift to you. And uh, this morning, I am going to attempt to teach all the way through a full chapter. <laughs> I... Where did I mention that? We were at the Tate's for dinner the other night, or somewhere, I don't know where it was, maybe it wasn't at the Tate's, but I mentioned it, and somebody literally said, you know, I'll I'll make sure to uh, bring a pillow with me, and I was like, what does that mean? Was that you, Dina, that said that? Somebody said that. I don't know who said that, but I, you know, I was highly offended. Um, Not at all. It's true. Hope you're ready to get some Z's. But anyways, uh, the chapter really sort of forces uh, me to do so, because I don't know if any of you took my advice last week and went ahead and read through it, but you'll notice the first 18 verses are like another reiteration of Peter's vision and his experience with Cornelius, and it's like, uh, do we camp out on that again and, and exhaust that? I think we already have, so you really got to get through to 18, and then 19 and on is where the, the meat of the sermon will be. But anyways, I've divided 11 into like seven little sections um, It's not critical that you write these things down. This is just the way that we're going to approach the text and and handle each topic that's there, each subject. So it'll begin with the criticism of the circumcised party. That's verses 1 to 3. Then Peter's explanation and defense. That's verses 4 to 17. And then we're going to see a change of heart with the circumcised party, verse 18. And then we'll shift into really... Uh, uh, the new part, the new section, which will be uh, the birth of the first Gentile church. We'll look at that in 19 and, uh, to 21. And then we'll look at the support of the Jerusalem church, verses 22 to 24a. And then we'll jump into the expansion of the church in Antioch, verses 24b to 26. And then we'll wrap it all up with the love and compassion of the church in Antioch with 27 uh, through 30. So pretty, pretty excited about how we're going to go about it. Just kind of keep in mind that when we get to those sections, I'll call them out, and that's what we'll be focusing on. If you weren't with us last week, or if you were and you have a short attention span or memory like I do, let me just 
kind of get us caught up to, you know, caught up a little bit here, get us all on the same page. But last week, we read about the conversion of a man named Cornelius and other Gentiles, non-Jewish people in Caesarea. We read about how the Holy Spirit came upon them while the Apostle Peter was preaching the gospel. Um, and then, basically, news of the revival, and this is where we kind of get into in our text today, but that's where we were last week, but news of this like mini revival in Caesarea began to break out and spread out across the entire region, uh, all the way down to Judea, uh, where Jerusalem and the apostles uh, were located. Now, you may recall from many sermons uh, a while ago, many sermons ago, the reason why Peter left Jerusalem in the first place, he was actually headquartered there with the rest of the rest of the apostles and doing ministry in the church at Jerusalem. But the original reason why he left Jerusalem to begin with uh, was that he had been sent to support the churches along the Mediterranean coast and to establish apostolic authority with those churches. You know, the, the, the apostles were very uh, uh, much afraid of churches breaking out throughout all of the different regions and not being tethered to the church at Jerusalem. They didn't want like denominations. They didn't want separate churches. They wanted every Christian to know that they were all under the authority of the apostles and, and the apostles were sort of governing and leading. And, and quite frankly, they were the ones doing all the teaching back in this day. You didn't have pastors and all that. This stuff was all new. And so he went out to support these churches along the Mediterranean coast, places like Yopa and Luda, those places that we taught, uh, we looked at weeks ago. And then he also went to file a report to bring back to Jerusalem with him. Like, I'm going to go out and support these churches. I'll, I'll get my hands dirty with some ministry. I'm going to support some folks. You know, we read about him going over there and, and raising a, a gal from the dead, and he just did all these cool things. And then he comes back and with a report to file and give to the other apostles, uh, the Jerusalem council, we would probably call them, back in Jerusalem. Now, before he returned uh, to give his report, the news of the Caesarean revival had already made its way to his peers, had already beat him down there, which is amazing because, like, news had to travel like donkey back, right? I mean, it's just, it was a slow process. You thought our postal service was bad, you ain't seen nothing compared to what they had to deal with back then. And so somehow, he's kind of on his way back, and news beats him down, and it gets to his peers before he can get there and tell them what happened or what's going on. And his peers were not happy. The other apostles, uh, the other leaders down there, uh, well, I don't know about the apostles, how they felt about it. That's not what we're looking at. But there were some amongst the leadership group that were pretty infuriated with the news of what had happened up in Caesarea. They were basically ticked off that Gentiles had gotten saved. They were ticked off that Peter had some interaction with them and, and did some things with them. We're going to investigate that stuff and study that stuff. And we're going to see, as I said, we're going to see a change of heart and all these things kind of come into picture here. But it's really an amazing story that we have before us. And uh, it's a bizarre one, too, that, that anyone would be frustrated with, you know, people getting saved and coming to the Lord in droves and, and it just it just just a lot behind that. We're going to flesh all that out. But anyways, news got down there and, and by the time he literally arrives in Jerusalem before his peers and before, you know, this Jerusalem council and all that, he's walking into a hornet's nest. 
he walks into a mess. He walks in. You ever walked into an environment where it's like everyone's twisted, everyone's ticked, everyone's fired up, and you walk in, you're like, I don't think I want to be at work today, right? You come in, you're like, wow, this is not going to be good today. This is what he literally walks into. They're just grinding their teeth at him. They're frustrated. Now, before moving forward and, and investigating, looking at all this, what the Lord would have for us, I'd like to pray one more time. I don't think you can pray enough in a church service, right? How many times are guys praying in services today? At the beginning, at the end, maybe. Sometimes I've seen it where we're not even praying that much. We should be praying all throughout our service, especially before I teach. I got loose lips. I say dumb things, man. I need the Holy Spirit. Father, help me in this moment. You know, I'm a, I'm a sinner who's been saved by you and saved by your grace, and I, I need your grace. I need, I need your power. I need your help. Um, I'm even tired today from being out late last night working, and so help me, Lord, to, to honor you and to glorify you. Help our, our people that have come down here today, and it's really amazing that we have this many people here on Father's Day. That's usually the day where we have a church filled with women, and we've got some dads down here and some guys down here, and I just, I just appreciate you, Lord, that you brought these folks down here. Open their hearts and minds to your truth. Um, we're going to see some vivid examples of of prejudice and, and just things uh, and, and I believe we all wrestle with some of these things in some ways and whether we admit to that or not but help our hearts today Lord to be open to you and to be teachable and to pay attention um, you have a lot for us today Lord so keep keep our attention and uh, use your power here today Lord to change us we don't want to be mere hearers of the word we need to be doers um, I'm tired of being a hearer myself most of the time, probably about 75%. I love to listen. I love to study, but I certainly resist applying it and living it out. Help me to do that. Help us to do that together. Help us to hold each other accountable. We just give this whole time to you, Lord Jesus, and we pray it in your name. Amen. All right. Let me get a little drink here. You got your note stuff ready and you got bibles there before you good deal let's get to it section one the criticism of the circumcised party verses one to three now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout judea heard that the gentiles also had received the word of god okay remember how i told you news got down there the apostles and and uh it says the and the brothers uh, these were other types of leaders Christian men, they got the news of what had happened up there with Peter leading that deal up in Caesarea. And it says, verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, um, not sure if I'd want to be associated with a club with that name, that's bizarre, the circ, right? Hi, we're part of the circumcision group. Okay, thanks for the TMI. Uh, so Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, criticized him you see it there in the text criticized him and what did they say to him when they criticized him you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them well it makes sense if you're part of the circumcision party that if you hear about one of your own or a guy that you're affiliated with hanging out with uncircumcised people you're going to have an issue with that right well that's exactly what happened now a lot of people blame the Reformation on denominationalism. 
Um, I've actually had people say, hey, you know, if, if you hadn't split off from the Catholic Church, the one church, and, and done what you did and rebelled, we wouldn't have all these crazy denominations, and quite frankly, we have about 40,000 of them within Christianity, and that's insanity to me. But guess what? There were actually denominations before the Reformation, because you had what? The circumcision party. Ah, we're the circumcision party. We're following everyone who's been circumcised, and, and that's our special party, and we look at the gospel and truth through this lens of circumcision, bizarre lens, right? I mean, that's, that's this group. This group is all about that. They were literally a sect or a denomination within the Christian church. They taught. Here's what they taught, okay? And, and what's incredible to me is that they actually... You're going to hear about what they taught and that they were actually included in the brethren, that they were actually seen as brothers in Christ. It's, it's a bizarre thing because they had some outlandish, crazy things going on. They actually taught that a person must first convert to Judaism before they can become a Christian. Okay, in order for you to be a Christian, you have to first become a Jew. And if you're not circumcised, I know you're 61 years old, you must be circumcised. You must be baptized through the Jewish ritual of baptism. You must go through this process. You must first become a Jew. And then now, because you, you've got to be a part of the nation of Israel, and then now you can actually become a Christian. You're ready to become a Christian. Crazy. You had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. If you want to be a Christian, basic teaching of these guys, if you want to be a Christian, you must be circumcised. You have to be circumcised to become a Christian. You have to obey the dietary laws and restrictions. And we know there was about a zillion of them. You know, you just ate a pretzel, you broke God's law. I mean, it was just how can you keep track of all of these things? And so on and so forth. You had to be Jewish. You had to obey the Jewish law. You had to do everything that a Jew would do plus what a Christian would do. Talk about burdensome. The circumcised party also believed that Jesus came for the Jews and Hellenists, or half-Jews only. They were extremists in their nationalism. They, I mean, it was all about the nation. It was all about the land. They were very pharisaical. They were all about the nation and all of these things. It was, it was incredible. It was way out of whack. And so they believed that Jesus had come only for the Jewish people and only for those Hellenistic Jews, those Jews that spoke Greek and had some Greek tendencies. But Jesus had not come for Gentiles or for the world, for every tribe and tongue, blah, 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 blah. It's a, it's a select thing, okay? They were inclusionists. It's just the Jews, just the Hellenists. This was, their, this was their line of thinking. They believed that Gentiles were excluded from God's grace and salvation because they believed that they were common and unclean. That they were not recipients because they were Gentile, they had Gentile blood in them, and that they were unclean and, and, and common folks. The circumcised party, another weird name, circumcised party criticized Peter for what? in our text, associating with Gentile people. They said, basically, in essence, not only did you enter these people's homes, these common, unclean people's homes, not only did you do that, but you ate with them. What did you eat? Did you eat unclean foods? 
Did you eat hog? Did you have pork chops? What did you eat? You went into their home. Not only did you do that, but you ate with them. First of all, Peter, you never go into a Gentile's home. You know that you're not supposed to do that. And if you remember from before, last week, maybe the week before, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, I don't know, Peter said, you all know when he went, walked into Cornelius' house, you all know how unlawful it is for me to be in here. Okay, that was the way they thought. You could not go into the home of a Gentile if you were Jewish. So they said, not only did you go into this place, off limits, never go into a Gentile home. I hope you understand you're unclean now for about seven days. They said, not only did you go in, but you ate with them. Double sin, double negative. No Jew would ever go into a Gentile home. No Jew would ever eat with a Gentile. Now, the word saying is interesting. It's, uh, you know, I, it, it doesn't do its justice in the English here. In the Greek, it means to continually reproof or to continually challenge. So when they're saying to him, you went into their home and you ate with them, they didn't say it once. They hammered him day after day. After he arrived, they went after him. They kept coming back to him over and over and repeating this thing to him, saying, we cannot believe what you did. We cannot believe, he must have been going crazy. We cannot believe what you did. This was a continual rebuke by them. It wasn't just a one time, we can't believe what you did, what were you thinking? It was over and over and over. It was continual in the Greek, which is very interesting. They criticized him over and over and over. They said the same thing to him over and over and over, and we would call that nagging, right? Yeah, right, yeah, nagging, you know? My mom to me, the laundry's on the floor, nagging over and over and over, pick up the laundry. I said my mom, not my wife, she does it too. But this was a constant, like, reminding, constant nagging. And you know what, if you just do what somebody tells you, then you don't get nagged, right? I don't know what it is about us guys, right? We just like to push the buttons. We see the laundry, we hear the reproof, and we say, nope, in our spirit. And then after day three, we say, oh my gosh, I'll never do that again. And you pick it up, you actually go do the laundry, right? You go, and your whites have never been that white. So they nagged him continually over and over and over and over. And at some point, he got tired of it and gave a response. He got tired of it and gave a response. He could not stand the nagging any longer, and he began to explain to them, to defend himself, and to explain to them how it all went down. And that's when we enter into section two, Peter's explanation and defense. This is the longer section. Some of the stuff is going to sound really familiar. This is a reiteration of where we've already been. I'll read through it and briefly talk on it. It says in verse four, but Peter began and explained it to them in order Okay, he didn't, didn't just start blurting out data. He actually went about his whole experience, what he experienced, systematically. He went through the order of how things happened. This is him kind of defending himself, not in a mean spirit, in a gentle spirit, but he's kind of defending himself, and he begins to explain what happened in order. And he says, I was in the city of Yopa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. It kind of came down before him. He says, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. I have never broken the Jewish dietary laws, is what he says back to the Lord. And then it says, but the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. There's a rebuke. And it says, he says, this happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And then verse 11, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, uh, which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And he says, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit here, told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, speaking of uh, Cornelius there. And verse 13, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Yopa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which, what, you will be saved. We're talking about the gospel, folks. He says, you and your household, they're all going to hear it. Something's going to happen. 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, speaking of Jesus, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he says in 17, if then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What a great explanation. What a great defense he presents. Now, if you've noticed, I hope you have, this is the third time that Luke has recorded, literally the third time in this book that Luke wrote, the third time that he mentions or records Peter, the Peter and Cornelius account. All three are listed within a chapter and a half of Scripture. Do you think that there might be an important point behind the reiteration, the repetition here? Every time you study your Bible and you read your Bible, when you see something repeated, verily, verily, I say or a story like this, or a verse, or whatever it is, that means that it's highly, highly important. It's more important than something that has been uh, said once. And so Luke has very intentionally, by the leading and power of the Holy Spirit, brought this same account before us three times in less than a chapter and a half of Scripture. That's pretty incredible if you think about it, and it's highly Significant. So the question is, do you think that the Holy Spirit is trying to make a major point through Luke's repetition? Absolutely he is. God wants everyone, anyone and everyone who reads Luke's letter, especially Jewish leaders, we know that it was written to a Greek audience, but Jewish people would get their hands on this thing at some point. God wants anyone and everyone who reads this letter especially Jewish readers, to know without a shadow of a doubt that his redemptive plan includes Gentile people. That is the point of the repetition. My plan of salvation that I have designed, orchestrated, put in motion, I began that in eternity past, and look, it's happening, and it includes people from every corner of the world. That's the point to the repetition.
He wants everyone that reads it, everyone that preaches it, everyone that hears it to know that salvation that comes from Him is not just for what? The Jews and the Hellenists. That it's for all walks of life, all colors, all ethnic background, uh, backgrounds, all people from everywhere, every tribe and tongue. Revelation 7-9 makes it so clear. In heaven there will be multitudes, grand multitudes of different people. Now this is especially important towards the Jewish readers, right? What have we just read about with the circumcised party? Well, he's all for us. All for the Jews and all for one. Well, we'll get those kind of weirdo Hellenists in there too because they're kind of Jewish. But that's basically who God came from. Look at the repetition. What is God saying to them? What did Peter just say to them with this whole explanation? Wrong thinking, guys. Quit thinking of, quit being so nationalistic. Quit thinking about yourselves. God's plan of salvation is a global plan. The repetition that we've seen in the last chapter and a half is meant to literally put to necros, to death, the ideology that God is for the Jews only. And this is not something that Orthodox Jewish people, most Jewish people, I would say, particularly the highly religious ones, do not understand today. They believe it's all about them. And we have people that are out there like Paul's daughter who's out there preaching the gospel to Jewish people, trying to help them to understand, first of all, Jesus is your Messiah. You're rejecting him there, and guess what? It's a global plan. It includes Gentiles from every walk of life. I'm so glad that Jennifer's out doing that kind of ministry to the Jewish people. But they are very exclusive. Are, are, no, not, yeah, they're exclusive. They think that Jesus is just about them. It's just about the Jews. And so Luke is trying to put to death that kind of thinking. He's putting to death that kind of thinking here through the power of the Holy Spirit. And incredibly, another reason behind the repetition God, and this is huge, God does not want or desire or will that the church of Jesus Christ make the same mistake as the nation of, Jew, uh, the nation of Israel. What did they do with the gospel and the grace of God and those things? I've already explained it to you. They kept it all to themselves. They bunched it all up and took the blessings and tried to contain it all in, 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 in their particular piece of geography, their promised land and their temple and amongst their own people and weren't even all that excited about the Hellenistic Jews, but they basically took the message that was given to the world to be delivered by them, by the Jewish people, they took that and kept it all to themselves. And the repetition shows us that God is clearly saying to each and every one of us and to everyone in the entire world, I do not want you, Christians, the church of my son, the church that I am building for my son, I do not want you to become like the nation of Israel and keep it all to yourself. There's another purpose there behind the repetition. Now Jesus warned against this idea of keeping it to ourselves um, in a few places, one in particular would be Matthew 5, 14 to 16. We heard read earlier, he said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, he says, to everyone that's listening, pointing probably to that big golden lampstand in the temple there. He points it out and says, In the same way, all you that hear me, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is he saying? Man, what I am bringing is for the world, and it's your responsibility to bring it out there and take it out there. Why? Because you're the light of the world, not the light of the nation of Israel. We, we don't often look at Jesus' words here as a, as a rebuke, but it is in a way. He's got Jewish people standing before him. He's got Pharisees standing before him when he does this teaching. They tracked with him. They went everywhere with him and listened to him and recorded what he wrote, tried to use that stuff against him later. How do you think they were made to feel when they found out, oh, we're supposed to be light of the world. We thought we were the light of the nation of Israel only. Oh, they were offended. This is a rebuke. God's plan of salvation is a global plan. The reiteration shows us that. It makes it so clear. There's no denying it. Go ahead and fight it if you want. You're just coming up against the brick wall of God's word. Now, also take notice of how Peter used a five-fold defense against his criticizers. Five-fold defense. Number one, Peter told them that he received, remember, he's got to defend himself. They're putting it on him. Number one, Peter told them that he received a vision from God and word from the Holy Spirit to go up into Caesarea and to talk to this person. Verses 4 to 12, that's where he says this. Hey guys, just so you know, I know you're ticked off that I associated with Gentiles. I went into their home and you're really fired up that I had a pork sandwich, you know, because pulled pork's amazing. But just so you know, this whole thing began with God coming to me. In a way, the way he, he makes it sound in a way like, hey, what can I do? I kind of thought along the same lines as you. But you know what? I got a vision and then I was commanded to go by the Holy Spirit. So what's he saying? This idea wasn't mine. I didn't come up with this stuff. I was perfectly fine down in, in Yopa chilling with my Christian homies. The Spirit came to me and told me, go. And I was like, in fact, when I saw the vision, I said, I ain't doing it three times. Right? He denied the Lord three times. I reminded you of how he did that back during the trial of Jesus, right after the trial when he denied, and Peter's like a three times kind of guy. I'm a 20 times, so what can I say? Number two, Peter told them that he took six witnesses with him. How brilliant is Peter? You don't go on a mission like that alone. What kind of defense do you have? Well, I was there and I... Now, obviously, Peter could have defended himself that way. He could have went by himself. He was the leader of the whole dang thing. He was the head apostle he could have went down there and said, by my authority, I went up there myself and took care of business. I took care of it. I did it. I handled it. No, 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 no. What did he do? He told them, I took six witnesses with me to Caesarea, verse 12, right? And the six that he took actually belonged to the circumcised party. <laughs> right? Man, Peter. I would have went up there with four guys that didn't have Jack for a voice. They didn't, he actually took guys from their party with him. Hey, guys, you're going with me. Okay. I can't believe we're going with him. We're going into Gentile territory. He actually took them with him. You see that back in chapter 10, verse 45. These guys were brothers of the circumcised party. It's amazing. He took witnesses. Hey, guys, I didn't go on my own. I took 
six of your dudes with me. All of a sudden they're going, I think he's got us. Shoot. No, he's got more for them. Number three, Peter told them that the Spirit fell upon the Gentiles as the Spirit had fallen upon them in the beginning. I think he's referencing the day of Pentecost. Verse 15 is where he says that. Hey, guys, I went up there. I took these witnesses. The Spirit told me to go. I was obedient. I went. I took witnesses. I knew not to go alone. And guess what? I started presenting Jesus Christ as Lord to them. They had no concept of a Messiah or any of that. They're Gentile people. I told them about Jesus as Lord. And as I was preaching the gospel to them, the Spirit fell on them. They, start, they showed signs. They spoke in tongues, showed that they had the Spirit and that they were saved in these things. The Spirit, that Spirit fell on them. He's building his defense here. Spirit fell upon those Gentiles, verse 15. Number four, Peter told them that he remembered what? The word of the Lord. And what did Jesus say? John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. Hey, guys. I, I was reminded as I was, as I was up there of what the, I know you guys are fanatical about this book here and you, you love the, you love the, you roll it out and you read it and you study it and, and, you, and you apply it and you love it a lot. I don't know how you come up with some of those things, but you love the word of God. Well, guess what? I remember while I was up there, the very word of God said that stuff like this would happen. It's in, what happened is in the scripture. Right there, they're going, this is not good for us. I mean, they're getting, they're, getting, they're getting antsy. And number five, Peter told them, paraphrased, God did all of these things, man. He, he gave me a vision. He commanded me to go by the Spirit. He, 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 he obviously led me to bring six of your own guys uh, with you. And then, and then God fell upon, in the Holy Spirit, he fell upon these people. And then God reminded me of the word where it says that, you know, wow, man, uh, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Man, it's going to be the, the very business of the Holy Spirit to come upon people, those people that God is saving. He says, man, God did all these things. It was all God. It's all about Jesus, right? And then he says, how could I stand in his way? Verse 17, how could I possibly stand in in the way of the Lord. And I think when Peter said that, he really meant it because he has stood in the way of the Lord multiple times. Oh, you're not going to die, Jesus. I'll die for you. I'll protect you. I'm Conan the Barbarian. You're not going to die. Get behind me, Satan. There's one time where he stood in the way of the Lord. And then denying him three times at the trial, there's another time. Well, Peter had learned. If God is at work, if God is moving, if God has orchestrated these things, and they will be, if God is behind it, first of all, the Spirit, it'll be obvious that the Spirit's involved. It'll confirm the Word. These are secondary things here, principles. It'll con be confirmed by the Word. There will be witnesses to it. God really doesn't do anything in secret service mode like some of us believe. God does things in a very public fashion, in a, in a way that people see. He says, man, how could I stand in His way? That's basically what He said. There's His argument, fivefold. It's really brilliant. And why is it brilliant? Is it because Peter was smart? No. It's because Peter was better than the other guys? No. It's because Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter had the very spirit of the living God living in him. Helping him, assisting him, and guiding him to obey the Lord. And that's essentially what he did through this whole thing. He obeyed in an incredible 
way and then gave an incredible defense. Section three, a change of heart. Okay, some guys got persuaded here. And this right here, if you do not believe that God has the power to change one's thinking and minds and hearts, you're nuts. There is nothing that God cannot break through. And we are going to see one of the clearest examples of that in the Bible, in the entire Bible. Change of heart, verse 18. When they heard these things, who's they? Circumcised party, weird name. Guy's got some incredible things going on there. When the circumcised party dudes, brothers, heard these things, they fell silent. They shut up. They quit repeating and nagging. What did you do, Peter? I can't believe it. They fell silent. They quit complaining. And then it says they all left, went out and got a pizza, and then left the church. Actually, it says they glorified God. They glorified God. What did they say? How did they glorify God, man? What a change of heart. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What a turn here. Man, they fell silent. They pondered what Peter said. And then what? They relented. Then what? They repented. They knew they were wrong. And their criticism was replaced by what? Praises to God. And then they actually made one of the most extraordinary admissions in the entire Bible. We do not want to downplay the significance of what they've said. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Remember, these guys were hardcore Jewish, fully orthodox. They were so Jewish that they were unwilling to let go of their Jewish traditions, laws, ordinances, despite the fact that they were Christians. At their core, they believed that Jesus had come for the Jews and half-Jews alone, but here we see them declare Jesus came for the Gentiles too. This is massive and a miracle of God's grace. To turn people that think this way, that are so hardcore, fundamentalist, one, you know, tunnel vision, I only see things through this lens. You've met them, right? You know them. Maybe you're one of them. And to have God's grace saturate, explode, uh, just disintegrate this line of thinking in these minds and hearts is incredible. It's a miracle of God's grace. These people were changed. Then to the Gentiles, God grants Repentance that leads to life. This is, this is an, an amazing admission that we see in Scripture. It's not often that we see these things in life or in Scripture where people have a full change of heart at the reciting of one little storyline. It just goes to show that no matter what these guys believed in the additional things and all of that, which, which, which I, I don't support and you don't support, the religion and all of that, it just goes to show that they did love Jesus and that the power of the Holy Spirit was in their lives because he caused a change of heart. God was with them. God was with them. It's incredible. Section 4. So that's your first 18 verses. Now let's move into the, the rest of it. Section 4, the birth of the first Gentile church. Verses 19 to 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, 
uh, speaking the word to no one, <laughs> what, except to Jews. Uh, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The believers who left Jerusalem after Saul, remember Saul, after he murdered Stephen and persecuted the church, these believers went all over the place, all throughout the, the Mediterranean region, all throughout this gigantic, well, not extremely large, but a fairly large region. And they went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Okay, Phoenicia was uh, the coastal region immediately north of Judea, where the cities of Tyre and Sidon uh, were located. You've heard of those cities of Tyre and Sidon. I believe Jesus visited them during his ministry. Uh, from that particular place, from Tyre and Sidon, or from Phoenicia, uh, there they could take a ship for the major island of Cyprus, which was some 60 miles offshore. So Cyprus is an island offshore in the Mediterranean. They could also continue up the coast to Antioch, which was approximately 200 miles north of Sidon. So Antioch was like the furthest point. It was way up there, like borderline Europe, just like up in that area. It was way up in there, uh, Asia Minor, I suppose. Now, Antioch was an extraordinary city. It was uh, what we would call a major ancient metropolis, a New York City, if you will, a Vegas, a San Francisco, uh, a Paris, something of that nature. It was a massive city. It was uh, I think the third largest city in the entire world at the time. Yeah, in fact, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, third largest city actually in the world behind only Rome and Alexandria, which were the largest cities in the world at the time. Antioch had about 600,000 people living in it, 600,000 in inhabitants. Antioch was noted for its culture, it was noted for its commerce, uh, since many Roman trade routes passed through it. The Roman author Cicero described it as a place of learned men and liberal studies. They had colleges there. They were big on education. It was also a vile place, full of pagan worship, full of sexual immorality, one writer said that life in Antioch was like one perpetual festival of vice revolving around the baths, the brothels, the amphitheater, and the circus. There was a goddess by the name of Daphne who was supposedly the lover of Apollo. The people of Antioch actually built a garden in honor to her that was so big that it was literally 10 miles in circumference. They actually built this very lush, beautiful garden with fountains and flowing water and perfectly, uh, you know, trimmed roses or whatever. I mean, it was just this beautiful, lush. I think in a way it was supposed to represent like the Garden of Eden, even though these people have no concept of that. But it was a beautiful place that was built for this goddess. And the garden was populated by prostitutes. 
And people would go in and indulge in all forms of sexual immorality. And that is how they worshipped Daphne. They would go into the garden and fulfill their lusts and lustful fleshly passions and engage in all forms of sexual immorality. And that was thought to be worship to this goddess. Pretty incredible. Now you might say to yourself, as I did as I was writing this, why would God plant a church in a place like Antioch? I mean, it was too far gone, right? It was worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Look what he did to those places. Annihilated them. Fire and brimstone coming out of heaven. Annihilation. Judged them. Destroyed them. This place was obviously worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why would God plant a church there? May we not forget the words of our Lord. He said in Matthew 9, 12 to 13, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus says this probing, penetrating statement. He says this before religious leaders. They were correcting him for being at Matthew the tax collector's home. He says, for I came not to call religious types like you the righteous, but sinners. Antioch, my friends, was the perfect place to plant a church. The perfect place to plant a church. Somehow, God, in eternity past, planned to plant a church there to reach these Gentile people. That's the grace of our God. Pretty amazing. Every form of sexual immorality, and God says, I am going to plant a church there and bring the gospel to these people, and I'm going to save people there. Pretty incredible. Such is the God that we serve. Now Luke tells us that the believers that traveled into, you know, remember the scattered believers that left Jerusalem at the hands of Saul, he tells us that they traveled into these regions and preached the gospel to what? When they went to Phoenicia and, and Cyprus and that other place there, they preached only to the Jews is what the text says. You notice that? They weren't very evangelistic as far as bringing the gospel to people that were not Jewish. Those scattered Jewish believers, Messianic Christians, Messianic Jews out of Jerusalem, they went up into Phoenicia and went up and over to Cyprus and these places and they just stuck to the Jews. Why? Probably because of prejudice. Hence the reason why we have the reiteration of the story of Peter and Cornelius. Some people just don't get it, guys. And I think we're those people at times, aren't we? Maybe we don't narrow down our evangelism, but we sure do be obedient, disobedient in other areas. That we disobey the Lord in other ways. That's human nature. Why do they do it? Probably because of prejudice. The scattered believers were Jewish believers who no doubt wrestled with the same prejudices as who? Peter, remember, he had a hard time. And no doubt that group with a weird name, the circumcised group. But there were some 
such as the grace of God, there were some among them who traveled to Antioch to preach the gospel to Greeks. Now, I'm not sure why my beloved translation, the ESV, put Hellenists in verse 20. We have learned over the months that a Hellenist is a half-Jew, a Jew that speaks in Greek. So when I got to that, I went, wait a minute, how did they plant a Gentile church in Antioch when they're just reaching more half-Jews? So immediately I was fell into turmoil. My beloved translation, what's going on with the ESV? It's my favorite one. Is there a translational error here? I don't know. According to the King James, according to the New King James, according to Paul Rogers' favorite, the NASB, according to the favorite of many of you, the NIV, um, <laughs> amen. I, it's okay, I like to read it, but according to those translations, they use Grecians or Greeks. They got the word right. Translators got the word right there. They did not use Hellenist half Jew. Now, maybe the ESV has a translation error. It's possible. It happens. The NIV has about a dozen of them. So don't get too excited about hammering my version of the Bible. It happens. It happens once in a while. Once in a while, translators put a word in there that just doesn't fit what's happening. And so it is so very important for us to know and to understand uh, that in our text, these were Greeks. Why? Because we are talking about, and this is held in orthodox belief throughout all the centuries, and scholars affirm it, Bible theologians affirm it, this is a story about the first Gentile church plant in the Bible and in the world. And so it's so important that we see these people as not having any tie to Judaism. These were Greeks. It's critical. And you had this out on the fringe group, this group of probably Jews, just like everyone else, who were just like, man, I'm just sensing in my spirit that this gospel's for more than just our own people. I don't know if they'd heard about this story and heard about how this went down and heard about Cornelius. They probably did. Everyone heard about it. But man, they weren't like the other Jewish believers who kept it to the Jews in Antioch and Cyprus and Cyrene. Man, they went out and they went into Antioch, the place of 600,000 people worshiping Daphne and the sex goddess and all this craziness. They went right into that environment. Can you imagine how the circumcised party may have felt about that? Okay, Peter, you went into a Gentile's home and ate with them. You guys went into Antioch? Are you crazy? May have been going through their minds. Who knows? Now, how did the men from Cyprus and Cyrene, that's where these guys were from, the ones that went into Antioch, how did they present the gospel? It says in the text they preached the Lord Jesus. This was important. Why? Because their listeners would Greek, were Greek. They, Greek people had no concept of Israel's, real, Israel's history or Israel's Messiah or this redemptive plan. They had to present to these Greeks the gospel in, by which, in a way that they would understand. So they presented the Lord. The Lord Jesus came and he died on a cross and did these things and he's Lord of all and judge of all. They presented the gospel in the same way that Peter presented the gospel to to the Caesareans and to, um, to Cornelius. Did you notice how Peter presented the gospel to them? He didn't talk about Israel's history and all that stuff that would have made no sense to them. They don't care about that stuff. They don't know about it. He said, we have a Lord. His name is Jesus. He came and did what he did. He died on a cross, paid for your sin debt. And guess what? He's the judge of the living and the dead. And at the point in time, he's going to do that. And they were scared and the Holy Spirit moved and bam, man, they got saved. 
That's how these guys presented the gospel. They presented Jesus as Lord. They had no concept of God's redemptive plan through and to the nation of Israel. So the men of Cyprus and Cyrene presented Jesus in a way that the Greeks would understand. How important is it for us to present the gospel in a way that people understand? We're like Greeks. We need to present Jesus as Lord. We have no concept of Israel's history or their Messiah or any of those things. We must do the same thing. They presented him as Lord and as the appointed judge. They presented a gospel in the same way that Peter did. And it says, incredibly, and the hand of the Lord was what? What does it say in your Bible? With them. What comes to mind when you think of the hand of the Lord? How about mightiness and power? In the scriptures, the hand of God is always associated with the might and power of God. What did God do with the Israelites in Egypt? He brought them out with what? His mighty hand. Jeremiah 32, 21. Isn't that fascinating? How did God stop the rushing waters of the Jordan so that his people could cross into the promised land? He did it with what? His powerful hand. It says in Joshua 4, 23 to 24. In Psalm 60, we read David's words. Um, he recorded these words, wrote these things down after he lost a battle. In verse 5, he wrote, Save us with what? Your right hand. You see, God uses his mighty and powerful hand to what? Rescue his people and to make a way for them. And the mighty and powerful hand of God was upon the evangelists from Cyprus and Cyrene, okay? The hand, the powerful, mighty hand, the, salvi the hand that has the power to work salvation, to turn people from their sin, it was upon these evangelists from those two areas as they went in and presented the gospel in Antioch. And what was the result? What does it say? A great number who believed turned to the Lord because the hand of the Lord was on them. The Holy Spirit attended their preaching. Again, without the Holy Spirit, there's no salvation. There's no life change. He must change our hearts. It's incredible what happened here. A great number who believed, turned to the Lord. Now, notice how the text says, who believed. It was people who already believed that turned to the Lord. How does someone who already believes turn to the Lord? You see it? How does that happen? Weren't these people that were listening to these men from these two places already saved? They already believed in the Lord. How can someone who already believes turn to the Lord? Well, it's pretty simple here. It would appear that some believed in Jesus to a degree, but had not yet repented of their sin and turned to the Lord Jesus for salvation. For some, it was some of those listeners who listened to these men, these evangelists, for some of them, it was a purely intellectual thing. They believed that Jesus came and, you know, performed miracles and healed the sick and probably walked on water. They probably believe he even died on a cross and maybe even potentially rose from the grave to some degree. For some reason, they believed in what these men were teaching at the intellectual level. They believed in the data. They believed in the facts. They believed in Jesus with their minds, right, is what we would say, but not with their hearts. 
And that is where the mighty and powerful hand of God came in. God took those head knowledge only folks, people, listeners, and convicted them of their sin by his mighty hand and pointed them with his mighty hand to Jesus for the salvation of their souls. And how did they respond to the grace and power of God, to the salvation message in the hand of God? They very simply turned to the Lord. They became believers not in mind only, but also in heart. It's amazing. How many people believe in Jesus at the mere at a merely intellectual level. I've had so many conversations with people who think like this. Yeah, I believe he came, he was a good guy, he was a prophet. A lot of religions teach these things, but there's no heart knowledge, there's no transformation. Hence the reason why we need the mighty and powerful hand of the Lord, the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray those things upon ourselves, we pray those things upon those who hear the gospel. We want God to work through the preaching of the gospel. Section 5, the support of the Jewish or the Jerusalem church, verses 24 or 22 to 24a, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Boy, they heard about what was going on up in the Antioch. Whoa, what's happening? And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas, we love him, not Barabbas. When, we love him too, but whatever. 23, when he came and saw the grace of God. Look at that man, he came up there. When he saw the grace of God, he was what? Glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 24, for he was a good man, talking of, speaking of um, Barnabas, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. The church at Jerusalem got blasted with more news of Gentile conversions. They did, man. But this time there was no criticism. What they said in their admission that Man, then God is bringing salvation. They believed it. They actually backed up what they said right there in that moment with the reality of their belief. And they actually backed it up with action. They didn't criticize this time. They didn't go, oh my goodness, what's going on? The world's fallen in. Instead, they sent Barnabas to Antioch to what? To help. Now, we've heard about Barnabas. Back in Acts 4, 36, 40, uh, 36 to 37, we learned that Barnabas was generous because he sold a field and gave the money to the cause of Christ. His original name was Joseph, but his friends started calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a very encouraging, exhortative, generous kind of guy. Barnabas was the one who convinced the apostles to accept Saul of Tarsus as a legitimate believer in Jesus Christ, Acts 9.27. Why did the apostles send Barnabas to Antioch? Verses 23 and 24 show us. Barnabas was not a sourpuss legalist. When he arrived at Antioch, he didn't criticize the new Gentile believers. He didn't tell them to obey a bunch of laws and dietary restrictions and to get circumcised. He didn't rag them about their faults. No, he saw the grace of God at work in these new believers, and he was what? Glad. That's the guy you send up there to encourage. The guy that doesn't go up there and go, you guys aren't doing any of this right. For crying out loud, you haven't been circumcised, you haven't done this, you're not following this way, you're doing your worship wrong, you're singing the wrong songs, you're doing this. He didn't, they didn't send a legalist up there. He went up there and rejoiced in what was happening. Barnabas was an exhorter, encourager. He exhorted those new believers in Antioch to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Isn't that what we should do with new believers? Shouldn't we encourage them to remain steadfast in the Lord? Shouldn't we tell them to cling to Jesus with all their might and strength? 
Shouldn't we warn them about Satan's devilish schemes to lead them away from the Lord? Certainly that's what we should do. And that is how Barnabas encouraged them. These were baby Christians. Maintain the course, new Christian. Stay on the path, the narrow path of righteousness that leads to life. Don't look to the left. Don't look to the right. Stay in the very living word of God. That's how he exhorted them and encouraged them. Why else was Barnabas selected? Barnabas was a good, righteous man. It says right there in our text, good means righteous. He obeyed the Lord. He did what the Lord said. He was right with the Lord, right with others. He was above reproach. Barnabas was also what? Full of the Holy Spirit. You want a guy going into an environment to encourage new believers and do additional evangelism up there who's not full of the Spirit? Send one who isn't and see what happens. He'll actually work through the power of Satan to reverse the work of God. He'll screw it up. There is another reason why they sent Barnabas that is not mentioned here, but it is incredibly important. Back in Acts 4.36, it says that Barnabas was from where? Cyprus. He was from the area. He was from that community. Let me tell you something, man. When these apostles figured out, when they prayed it up and figured out who to send, they sent the right guy. They sent a guy who was from that community and that whole area who was basically, who knew the Greeks, who knew the language, who knew the lifestyle, who knew the sins, who knew all of it. He was indigenous to the area. He knew the area on top of the fact that he was a righteous man and all of these other things. How much sense does it make to send someone or to equip someone from an area to do ministry in their own area instead of sending some foreigner in there who doesn't even understand the language or the lingo or the lifestyle? Man, the apostles were led by the Holy Spirit brilliantly, brilliant, brilliantly pardon me, in their choice of who to send. They sent the perfect man up there to do the job. There was no better man to send. Barnabas was it. He had all of the qualities and characteristics that a true evangelist needed. And he was from the area. He was from the region. He grew up there. He grew up in those communities. He knew and understood the Greeks and all that was going on up there. Sending the wrong person would have been catastrophic. Sending a legalist would have been catastrophic. Sending a guy from the circumcised party, I guess they had a change of heart. I don't know if all of them did because there were Jews up in that area that would only stick to the Jews. But bottom line, sending a guy from the circumcised party would have been catastrophic. In fact, he never would have even taken the mission. These baby believers needed the right man to encourage them. And the apostles sent them the right man, Barnabas. Now look at what the Lord did while Barnabas was there. Section 6 the expansion of the church in Antioch, verses 24b to 26. And we're getting down to the end. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Wow, look at that. A great many people were added to the Lord. So was it because of Barnabas? No, but he certainly assisted. So Barnabas went to, so many were added, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for who? Guess who's about to come into the picture here and stay in the rest of the book of Acts? Saul, who becomes Paul. This is where it gets really crazy. He went into Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. The church exploded, man. So much to the point that Barnabas said, I can't even handle this ministry. It's too big. It's exploding. God is doing a work here. He needed help to do the ministry, man. He could not handle it himself. Neither could those brothers that were up there with him. Those guys from those other communities. And so he went out and searched for Saul. 
He went to Tarsus. Look for means to, in the Greek, means to diligently search for. He didn't just look around real quick and find a man. He spent some time trying to find him. After Saul returned to Tarsus from Jerusalem, he had been disinherited for his Christian beliefs and forced to move from his home, Philippians 3.8, which made it hard for Barnabas to find him. Barnabas went to his old home, his old address. He found out where that was and went there and tried to find him. He could not find him. He had been disinherited, basically removed and kicked out of his family, removed from that community and that group of Jewish people and booted out, lost his home. I mean, he literally, it says over there in that Philippians passage, he forsook all things for the Lord. This is one instance where he did it. He was out and loose. I don't know if he was homeless. I don't know what he was doing. But Barnabas searched and searched and searched. May have taken some time, may have taken some weeks, may have taken months. I don't know. And then he found him and he brought him to Antioch. What a team these guys were. What did they do when they arrived in Antioch? Surely these two giants of the Christian faith had a strategy to grow and expand the church. What kind of programs did they dream and scheme up? What kind of events did they plan? What kind of outreaches and inreaches did they conjure up? What bands and preachers did they book? And, you know, how did they fill their calendar, right, with Christian events and stuff to blow this church up in Antioch? What did they do? Surely they filled their calendars with events and conferences and, and concerts, right? What does the second half of verse 26 say? For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. You mean to tell me they just taught the word of God? That's what they did. They didn't come up with all these schemes and plans and fill their calendar with endless Christian entertainment and everything else. They taught the word. And one of the great tragedies in the church today is that the men of God, so many of them no longer believe that the word of God works that it's not sufficient in and of itself, that it has to be accompanied by endless testimonies. Well, when I was a child, that it has to be accompanied with, you know, you two on stage, that it has to be accompanied by all of these things and all of these forms of entertainment and all of these videos and all of these things. Am I opposed to all those things? I think they have a time and a purpose. I think they can be used by the Lord. I'm not dead set against them, but I am dead set against anyone who does not believe, especially a man of a cloth who does not believe that the word of God is sufficient to do what it aims to do. It does the work. So quit doing the, if, if, if you're all about the programs and all that, you need to repent of your sin. It's a sin to replace the teaching of the word, to downgrade the, the teaching of the word, to reduce it down to 20 minutes and fill the rest of your service, first service with another 60 minutes of junk. It's horrible. It's in the church today. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's out of control, friends. And if we study the scriptures, we see over and over and over where the power is. It's in the word. It's in the preaching of the word, especially when the Holy Spirit attends it. What were these guys' secret to growing the church? Teach the word. Teach the word. Notice how they did it for a year. Oh, they didn't do it? Well, we're going to have balloon animals next Sunday and all these other things, and then the third Sunday of every month we teach. Week in and week out, these men taught the word 365 days. 
and think of these teachers. Who are we talking about here? Barnabas, pretty amazing dude. Saul, pretty amazing dude. Can you imagine sitting under these men's teaching for a year? Can you imagine having them as your pastors? Now, don't think about that too hard. I need my job. But think about that. Think of having these guys as your interim pastors for a year. These were some serious men of God who were anointed in ways that are unimaginable. These guys were so filled with the Spirit and so gifted by God. And, so, and the thing that's most impressive, I think, by them is that just their devotion and their sacrificial living. These guys really got it. When I think of men that were like Jesus, Barnabas and Saul were like Jesus who I hope to aim to be like, and I find every day that I'm not so much like. Lord, do I want to be. That's who these guys were. That's what they invested in, the teaching of the word. 365 days, I don't know what the Jewish calendar, I don't know what calendar they went by, but it was a whole year, it says. They taught, and they taught, and they taught. Imagine what it must have been like for those baby Christians to come up under that teaching. Amazing. Verse 26 says that the title Christian was first applied to the believers at Antioch. Christian means of the party of Christ and was used in derision. We don't know that. Most of us don't know that. That it was a, uh, it was a term that was meant to insult those who followed Christ. It wasn't a happy, woo, title, look at the Christians, they're so cool. It was like, look at the Christians, what a bunch of idiots. Christian was a term of derision. It was a... Um, it was a, a kind of rebuke. It was a, a form of ridicule to call someone a Christian. Non-Christians then do as they do today. They would laugh at believers and ridicule them, saying things like, look at those poor, pathetic Christians. And what we hear today is, look, they just need Jesus as their crutch. Those poor, pathetic Christians, they need Jesus to hold them up. And every time somebody says that, I say, amen. What are you being held up by? Coors Light? You know? Cocaine, immorality, what are you being held up by? Your wife, she can't hold you for long. Yeah, he's holding me up. It was a term of derision. Non-Christians would laugh and scoff, calling them Christians. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul gave his testimony before King Agrippa. About halfway through it, Agrippa said, in an agitated and highly sarcastic voice. Paul, are you trying to make me one of these Christians? Is that what you're attempting to do by saying all of these things? You're trying to make me one of these Christians? You see how it's used. Peter encouraged those who suffered as what? Christians, as a Christian, not to feel ashamed, but in that name to what? Glorify God. 1 Peter 4, 16. What was a term of derision, though, soon became a badge of honor to the early church. The historian Eusebius relates the account of the martyr Sanctus who replied to his torturer's questions. He was being tortured and about being ready to, to be killed for his faith. And the only thing that he said to them over and over was, he didn't give his name, he didn't give testimony, he didn't say anything else. All he said was, I am a Christian. They knew what it meant. All the more reason to lop his head off or whatever they did to him. All he said was, I am a Christian. It was a badge of honor to him. Ridicule from their side, badge of honor to him. Go ahead, I'm a Christian. That's all I am, that's all I can say. I am a Christian. I am of, of, of the party of Christ. Section 7, the love and compassion of the church in Antioch. 
Last section, verses 27 to 30. Now, I'm so appreciative of your patience. I know this is a little longer than normal, but we are covering a lot. And can you see why we needed to? Some of you are saying, no, I think you could have stopped about an hour ago. Um, section 7, the love and compassion of the church in Antioch. Verses 27 to 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the entire world. In parentheses, it says this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The term prophet here refers not to an Old Testament figure such as Isaiah or Jeremiah, but to the preachers of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14.32, Ephesians 2.20, reference. Some of these New Testament preachers went up to Antioch from Jerusalem. They entered the church at Antioch, and one by the name of Agabus uh, began to prophesy about a great famine that was coming. The great famine actually did come to pass during the reign of Claudius in A.D. 45 to 46. This fact, in reality, was recorded by early historians like uh, Tacitus and Josephus and Suetonius. It was a devastating famine that actually came upon the land. Uh, the land of Israel itself became very barren and no rain or crops for a long time. Many suffered and died through this whole thing. But the Christians at Antioch responded. How did they respond? They rallied together and raised relief and support for the believers down in Judea. They sent money and supplies to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and to the surrounding areas. Now, who did they select to make the journey south with their hard-earned money and supplies? Who did they select as their representatives to go and express their love and compassion for these believers down in the southern part? The men in whom they grew to love respect and trust their beloved brothers their beloved teachers Barnabas and Saul that is the point where Barnabas and Saul left the church at Antioch to take all of the supply down and to bless the believers down in Jerusalem to bless the party of the circumcised group the ones who had an issue with them at first maybe or before I just love the love and compassion of this church. This is fruit. What you're seeing here is an example of fruit. True conversion is followed by fruit. And one of those fruits is a love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a first and primary fruit. And, and how do you express that love? Through generosity, through compassion, through meeting needs, through caring for them. Remember what happened in Acts 2, 42 to 47. What were all the believers doing? Sharing everything they had, even selling stuff and, and giving the proceeds to one another. What you're seeing here is an example of what happened after the day of Pentecost. How the church exploded and grew and they came, they were baby Christians and they started to mature and they began to love each other and provide for each other and they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles and the breaking of bread and all these things and generosity and giving. You're seeing the exact same thing, the same representation here in this church up with non-Jewish believers in Antioch. How beautiful is that? 
That's what you're looking at. That's what you're seeing. In ending, I'd like to just bring a few things to your minds. The church in Antioch was planted seven years after the day of Pentecost. It took seven years from the day of Pentecost, the explosion of the Holy Spirit, massive salvations, people coming to the Lord in droves, multiplied by another couple of thousand, then it kept growing and growing to where the apostles couldn't even count them anymore. There were just thousands and thousands, probably tens of thousands. That's what happened at Pentecost and in, in, in the months to follow. From the day of Pentecost forward, it took seven years to plant this church in Antioch. Why did it take so long? Every believer in the world... <laughs> Think about these reasons. Every believer in the world at that time was less than seven years old in the faith, minus the apostles who were a little older, minus the group of 120 which were a little older. The vast majority of people were added to the church on or after the day of Pentecost. You might say that the church, the Christian church, was still very young at that seven-year mark. Young Christians tend to not make good evangelists, good elders. In fact, the Bible forbids it. Don't make a new convert an elder. You'll pay for that. But think about why it took a little while. Seven years, to me, that seems like kind of a long time. Seven years, plant first Gentile church. Well, think about it. Every believer in the world was less than seven years old in their faith. Some far less than that. Okay? Think about that. That's interesting. Lots of young Christians everywhere. The apostles, another thing, the apostles were responsible for the teaching and the grounding of the believers in biblical doctrine. How many apostles were there? Twelve that were handling all of the teaching for all of these believers. There may have been a few deacons in there doing, or doing some of that stuff too. I think Stephen, he obviously was killed, he taught, and Philip did, and he was a deacon. But bottom line, there weren't a whole lot of men who were anointed that way and, and knew the word of God and had the word of God coming through them right in those moments. There weren't a whole lot of them. Now think about taking 12 guys and trying to teach thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. What a feat. Our church has how many people in it? It's challenging to teach this many. Think of 12 men trying to teach all of these Christians. How long would it take to educate thousands of baby Christians in sound doctrine? who had been spread out all over the place, not to mention. Christian education was a much slower process back in these days. Why? Because Bibles were not yet available. The writings of Scripture were being written and beginning to be distributed, you know, at this point and, and beyond. But for the most part, we didn't, you couldn't just show up at a church and everyone take your Bible and turn to this. There was probably, if you had a church, there was probably one scroll there. Some of these things had to be given to the apostles live right there in the moment. Some had to be given by memory. So much of the teaching was passed around word, you know, by word. That's how it was distributed. Now think about that. Twelve apostles, maybe a handful of more people, teaching all these Christians. Don't you think that if you're going to go out and plant a church that you need to have men and, and women, people, the people of God, don't, they think, don't you think they need to be grounded in sound doctrine? What are they going to be teaching if they plant a church and it seven years all of a sudden doesn't seem like that long of a time, right? Think about that. 
Think about this. How difficult is it to put people in the right place of service according to their gifts and talents? How many of you have served in multiple places, tried different things, and said, man, I did that down in children's ministry. That was not for me. Or maybe some of you have gone down there and said, that was for me. I love serving down there. Or, you know, you've done ushering or something like that. How, many, how difficult is it? Do you realize, I don't know if you know this or not, one of the greatest challenges of church leadership is to slot people in the right places where they serve. It's difficult to figure out what people can do. It's hard for them to figure out what they can do, where they're gifted. So we have to try a lot of things. You think about that in terms of planting a church. What's your giftedness? Are you called and, 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 and trained to, to teach the word week in and week out and to plant a church? I mean, think about slotting people in their places of giftedness. Not everyone is a church planner. Not everyone is a pastor or elder. Not everyone is a prophet. In fact, those offices are the narrowest of offices. We tend to think that anyone can do those things today. Big mistake. Every Christian was fairly young in the faith. How do you spot one that possesses the right level of training? How, how do you train them up? How do you spot one that has some of those things going on? How do you spot one, get to know one, when, when, when there's just so many leaders and so many Christians? How do you find one that has the right character to be a planting pastor and to be an elder? And It takes years to identify and train men for that task. I don't believe they just come out of heaven ready to rock and roll. That God just says, you're going to be that, and now you have everything that you possess to do it. They have to be trained up and appointed by the church. That's how you do it, right, Paul? That's what Paul always says. They don't just all of a sudden, well, that guy's a special guy. He's got the, 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 you know, the zero tolerance uh, anointing. He can do anything. God's just all over him. No, they have to be trained how to preach, trained how to plant a church. Unfortunately, most hiring pastors think that Four years of seminary does the trick. Too bad four out of five seminary grads drop out of the ministry within five years. That's a real statistic. Take into consideration how prejudiced the first Christians were. Acts 10 and part of 11 make it pretty clear that the Jewish believers were not interested in evangelizing Gentiles. The thought of Gentile churches turned many stomachs in the early church, even Peter's. God had to declare war on prejudice before the church would even consider reaching the Gentiles. This is why Luke, again, repeated the story of Peter and Cornelius so many times. How long does it take to break the strongholds of prejudice in people's hearts? Have you been to the South? They're saying the same dumb things there that they were saying 40 years ago. Still referring to people of other colors in derogatory terms. It's unbelievable. If you put all these things together, all of these speed bumps, all of these roadblocks, all of these brick walls, I think that seven years was actually pretty quick. <laughs> I think it should have taken 10, 15, maybe 20 years to plant the first Gentile church with all of that stuff going on. Every Christian was young. They only had 12 apostles and teachers. They had no Bibles. They were prejudiced. But our God, ending thought, our God is bigger and greater than all of those things. He always brings his plans to fruition. We are at times so dull of mind, so hard in our hearts, so immature, so unlearned, and even prejudiced. But he loves us despite those things. 
In fact, he is working to sanctify us and make us like Jesus through the process of coming to know about those things and, and coming to change those things in our lives. He uses those difficult things, our dullness and all of those things, to break us down, to deconstruct and to reconstruct us more into the image of Christ through those challenges. It is true that only God can make a masterpiece out of a mess. We have seen him do that consistently in the book of Acts, haven't we? Rejoice in the fact that he is doing that in you. Rejoice in his work. Father, we have a short time for communion. And I know it's gone longer today and we've had to cover a lot. And I do thank you for the attention of these folks who have been so gracious and kind and attentive. And I thank you for your word, God, which every day that I get into it really brings me to the end of my rope. And then your mercies are new every day, and, and I start again and start fresh. I'm a dull-minded person at times. I, I can even be a little prejudiced. God, I know that we all share in those things. Continue your great work in our lives. Convict us when we sin. Transform our thinking, our minds, our hearts. Make us compassionate lovers of others, first the church and then the lost world. May we be generous towards others as this church was. We are Gentile believers. We are like the Antioch folks, so much like them. Guard us, protect us, be with us. May we remember what these elements represent during communion. The finished work of Jesus Christ is spilt blood for the remission of our sins. His broken body taking our sin upon him. May we also remember the resurrection where we get our power. The hope of our future comes through that. Without the resurrection, we are foolish. May we rejoice in all that you're doing in our lives and what you've done here today. Thank you for Father's Day. Pray a blessing on these fathers. May they not forget to take that gift with them, that book, and enjoy it. And thank you for all the moms, too, who support these dads. It ain't easy for them. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Help yourselves. The elements, and we'll close it out.